Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. O gracious and most merciful Father, let us never forget. Let us never forget your promises which you have spoken to us of old because through them we have found life, that we belong not to ourselves but to you that you would save us as your people, as we have seen your promises speak. As the wicked lie and wait to destroy us, let us consider your very promises that you are with us and you will never leave us. Let, when we see the limits of our imperfections and our perfections, Lord, let us hold fast to you and what you have revealed to us in your word. Be with us now as we seek to be able to understand your word and see how it points to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. This is God's holy, inerrant, life-giving word. Please take heed how you hear. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could not hide him no longer, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And she opened it, and saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him, and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, And she became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Pharaoh has tried all that he can do to be able to wipe out the sons of Israel. God's solution is to protect the sons. And the way that he does this is to be able to send one son in particular to stand up and to be the mediator for all the sons. We see this amazing story of how God works. And particularly in this passage, God works through women to be able to save the sons of Israel. God saves uh, through these women in this passage to be able to save this one particular child. Last week we saw the two women, the the Hebrew midwives, Shiprah and Apua, 
to be able to save all of God's sons from death. And this week we see three women used by God to be able to save this one son who will in turn go and save all the sons from slavery. The story of Jochbed and Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter, and also of Moses in an incredible display of God's providence and the courage of these women to be able to stand up, stand firm, to be able to save the life of this innocent child. Now the birth of Moses came at a time when then Pharaoh had ordered all the sons, all male Hebrew children, to be destroyed. You see that in the very last verse of chapter 1. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. You see, in verse 2, and the woman conceived and bore a son. It is very clear they are Hebrew, Hebrews, and this son is a Hebrew child. So we first find out about Jochbed. Find out in the first three verses of this story of this child, these two parents from the clan of Levi, we find out in chapter 6 their names, Amram and Jochbed. And, and, and Jochbed means the Lord is glory. Amram means a mighty nation or a mighty people. Now, this might give us a little glimpse of a time of what it was like in this period. Here they are, they're giving their children names. They don't call them, the glory of God has departed, but the Lord is glory. They remember that the God who has revealed himself to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these two Levite, uh, this couple, now have their own son. And again, they do not follow the orders of um, uh, the Pharaoh. They defy civil uh, uh, commandments. And they hide him. They hide this little child for three months. And we find out why they hide him. Because he was a fine, beautiful, healthy child. Here you see this, this statement. What makes him fine? I think there can be many definitions. I think what you see here is that it is good. Tov is the word there. That God made all things in the space of six days and he called all things good. And here this little child is good, the life. Stephen in Acts chapter 7, that this child is beautiful in God's sight. The author of Hebrews also explains that they were not afraid of Pharaoh's command to kill all the children as he had commanded in chapter 1. Just as the midwives feared God, so did these two parents. They did not fear Pharaoh, We know who this child is. We know where this story is going. 
But they risked their lives to be able to save this one life. They did not know what Moses would accomplish for God's people. They risked their lives to be able to save this, save this one life. They had other children. What's one more, right? But yet they feared God enough to be able to save this one child. They did not save this child because they were promised that this child would deliver God's people. They saved this child because this child had life. This child could have grown up like any others, served Pharaoh as a slave, died a short death from the burden that was placed upon his back, but yet they still saved this child. They disobey a civil government's command to be able to protect this child's life. And they hid this child for three months. But eventually hiding a child gets very difficult. I think you might be able to cover up noises in some way. But ultimately, eventually, children get bigger, louder. They start to move. And again, she takes action to be able to save this child's life. Now, Pharaoh told all people to be able to ca- in the land to be able to cast, to eject, to throw out all male children in the Nile. But this mother does not treat this child like trash. So she makes a basket out of bulrushes or papyrus reeds. Now, an interesting thing about this here, this basket, the exact word is used only one other time in the Bible. That's found in the book of Genesis, in the story of Noah and the ark. Noah makes a big ark, covers it with uh, bitumen bitumen and pitch. And here... Then the ark floats in the water, the the water outside, judgment outside, and the ark saves Noah, his family, and all creation. With the animals that were on the ark. And here, now, this mini ark is placed into the water. Not with lives, but a life. Moses placed into this water, which is this symbol of death. And we hear about this. We hear about the fear of the midwives. But at some point, there was a mass murder of Hebrew sons during this time. You think about how many baby boys had been killed during this time. But here, Moses is saved from the judgment made by Pharaoh in this mini ark. Now, we're not told where this idea came from, what Jochebed's motives were in making this mini ark. However, she goes to great lengths to be able to save this child. We must assume that it is an aspect of faith that she and her husband had to risk their lives to be able to save this life. And that's their motivation for their actions. And I have no doubt that she had no idea what this child would do. 
And the second person that we see here in this passage is Miriam. We find out that this child had a sister. And again, we see the parents are involved in to be able to send their child's older sister to watch over him, to be able to keep him safe. She watches this small ark float down the river, and as this miniature ark floats down into the reeds, here now the daughter of Pharaoh, bathing under the watchful eye of her servants, and again, Miriam would be at the right time, at the right place. She's then sent by Pharaoh's daughter to be able to find a nurse of the child. She knows who the best nurse will be. She runs and gets her mother to nurse the child. Jockbed there sees this circle and placing this child in an ark, and the, the child is then returned to her. I'm sure as Jockbed prayed over that small ark and sent it on its way, I'm sure she would have never imagined that soon she would be holding that child in her arms once more. Pray, Lord, that you would keep this child safe. Place it in a home that will care for it and love it. Pray that they might raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And yet moments later, there that child is, growing up in their house once more. In all of this, I think the interesting part is actually where this child ends up. We see then Pharaoh's daughter. We see these women who try and care for these children, uh, the two midwives, the and Jochbed and, and Miriam all have an intention trying to, to fear God, to save God's people. The midwives, I suspect, are Israelite women. This is the child's mother, the child's sister. Of course they will care for this child. Of course they would love and nurture this child. But here we see the daughter of the enemy. The one who who has begun all this, who has put all the pressure to be able to wipe out all the sons of Israel, who is afraid of all these sons of Israel rising up, joining other nations, fighting against the Egyptians, leaving, escaping from Egypt. The one who has initiated the command of putting them into forced labor or slavery, the one who has commanded the midwives to kill all children that are born, the male sons, all the people, not this private in-room in discussion where how can we wipe these people out, this public knowledge of I want these children dead, all these sons of Israel dead. And yet, now we find the daughter of this man. And this daughter meets one of these sons. Her father had clearly said every single one of the male children should be put to death. And yet, in God's providence, where does he put this one child? 
in Pharaoh's own house. She finds a basket floating in the reeds. She opens it up. And here this child is screaming, crying. And what is her response? Her response is to be able to see this child and have pity on this child. Even this lady who might have agreed with her father and said, wipe out all the sons of Israel. Yet when there is a child in front of her, she still is able to be able to have pity on that child. Life, she says. You think maybe she might even be able to get enough courage to be able to look away and say, servants, take care of it. Flip the ark over and let the baby die. But yet, she sees this life and she has pity on it. And she even knows it's not just a child, it is a Hebrew child. You see that clearly there in the end of verse 6. six. This one of the Hebrews' children. And in this moment, she also stands in defiance against her father's command to destroy all male children. After Jochbed returns this child to Pharaoh's daughter, she even adopts him as her own. And finally, we find the name of this child, Moses. We're given the reason why Pharaoh's daughter called this child Moses. I drew him out of the water. Now the Hebrew word is used to be able to speak of drawing out. And again, we must see the irony and humor of the Lord's providence in all of this. Pharaoh tells his people to throw the sons into the water. But within his house, there's a child who roams around, walks around, Moses, Moses, I drew him out of the water. You told me to throw him in, I drew him out. The humor of this must not be overlooked. But in all of this, it's all pointing towards this one child. Moses. The works of God's providence, the plan that he promised to Abraham. Where God says in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation and they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Here we see the beginning of God's plan of movement that He is raising someone up who is going to help draw them out, not out of the water, but out of Egypt, through the water. On the other side of the water. God would raise up this young child to be able to deliver his people through his powerful judgments. But in all of this, we see God's providence as we see him raised in Pharaoh's house. 
See, even in those beginning stages that here Moses understands of the promises of his father, forefathers, raised up even in those young years in the house of a Levite couple. That all of this is a time of preparation of this man who's going to be the leader of God's people. Now, two other passages actually help us understand all of what's happening in this beginning stages of Moses' life. And these works of providence of God in Acts chapter 7 and Hebrews chapter 11. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen says in verses 20 to 22, He was brought up for three months in his father's house. When he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her son. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. When we see God places Moses in Pharaoh's house, he raises him up. And what he is given there in this greatest time is the greatest education of the day. Moses was then used by God to be able to write down and record through the inspiration of the Spirit the first five books of the Bible. You understand even God's providence is that Moses had to write and learn to write somewhere. And he does so in this period of time raised in in Pharaoh's house. Now if he had been raised a slave, this would have been a tremendously difficult task. However, he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Moses would go before and stand before Pharaoh. And even in the practical nature of leading a large group of people through the wilderness. There you might have seen even Moses learn about administrative skills of how, uh, you know, in this household, how this nation is run. Now Stephen focuses on the positive of this, that he's instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians as he's raised in Pharaoh's house. But the author of Hebrews explains that he actually did not want to call himself an Egyptian. Hebrews 11, verses 24 and 25 says, By faith, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the sons of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And Moses points this out as he even records and writes Exodus. That here Moses says that he's called Moses because he's drawn out of the water. But this focuses on the Hebrew meaning of the word. However, the Egyptian meaning actually would have been that the son of. That several Egyptian names use this genitive in the combination with other words. Thut Moses, the son of Thut. Ah, Moses, the son of Ah. On the other hand, the name Moses here, this genitive construction, lacks an object. He's not called the son of Pharaoh. He's solely to refer to as the son of. Now, I believe this is kind of what the author of Hebrews is highlighting as, along with what happens in the rest of chapter 2. Moses did not want to be known as the daughter or the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He wanted to be known as the son of Israel, which Pharaoh was trying to eliminate. 
He chose not to live a life of pursuing man, gratifying sin, as the author of Hebrews highlights. But God glorified suffering. From this passage, we see that the people of God still have hope and trust in God who revealed themselves to their fathers. They are still known as the sons of Israel. They've been in Egypt a long time, and yet they're still a distinct people group. They haven't merged into the world and become like them. They haven't sought to be able to um, just become Egyptians. And I think this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is clearly pointing out, that mentioning that, that Moses didn't want to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but as counted in the people of God. And later he writes that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You think about this, this specific time that here Moses is growing up in a house and filled with wealth. Anything that he probably ever wanted is right there. And yet Moses does not say, I want to be like them. He says, I want to be like the people out there. Suffering. Moses saw this glorious inheritance from Christ. And and as he saw the great treasures of Egypt, he said, I don't want the great treasures of Egypt. I want this inheritance of Christ. Hebrews 11 speaks of that great cloud of witnesses that have gone before, who lived not by sight but by faith. They often in their life on earth had nothing and lived in difficult situations. They didn't really have much of an option, you might say. But yet here Moses had the option. He lived in that house of great wealth and riches. But because of his faith, he says, I do not want those riches. I do not want those treasures. He sought not the wealth of the world, but the inheritance from Christ. He would rather be mocked and scorned, even from the people of God, than to have all the riches of Egypt. As the author of Hebrews puts it, Moses was looking to the reward. Now this is the same for us. Right before chapter 11, the author of Hebrews speaks of a New Testament Christians who suffer the reproach of Christ, who look for the reward. See this earlier in chapter 10, verse 32 and 35. Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had better possession, an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, such which what has a great reward. And we know where this story is going. We know what happens. We know that 
in the end, it's called Exodus for a reason. But yet here at this time, just as Jochebed had no idea who this son would be, here, the people of God still trusted in God. And we think about Moses and even the people of Israel during this time. They're going through great suffering and persecution. Things will get a lot worse before they get any better. But the people of God live by sight, uh, by faith and not by sight. That they're forever looking forward and upward to the promises of God. And I think this is what makes Hebrews 12 such an encouragement to us. As we think about Jochbed, as we think about Miriam, we think about Moses and their great faith. Hebrews 12 begins by saying, right after speaking of all of these uh, men and women in in chapter 11 of great faith, the author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and sing sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that was set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It still remains same for us. They were looking forward for God to be able to save them, deliver them. The author of Hebrews actually specifically says that Moses was looking for that inheritance of Christ. And we too so look towards Jesus. With this great cloud of witnesses behind us, that we lay aside every weight of sin which clings so closely. We run that race that is set before us, keeping our eyes fixed on the prize, Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise that your word speaks of men and women who live not by sight but by faith. We give you thanks and praise that we see in your Bible that there are true believers who suffer much, who have difficult choices before them, and yet they live not by sight but by faith. We thank you for the great story of testimony of those who have um, gone before us, this great cloud of witnesses. Help us, Lord, to be able to keep our eyes as we run this race that is set before us our eyes do not shift downward or backwards, but looking forward and upward to Christ, the one who is our, the author and the one who is the perfecter of our faith. Let us put our faith and our trust in him. As the rich of the world are surround us and temptations that abound, we pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on Christ and that glorious inheritance which is found in heaven with him. We pray in Christ's blessed and holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. 
Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.